seated. If you would, turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible of your own, then get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And that Bible's on page 939. And we're looking today at the second half of Romans 1.18. We got through the first half of that verse last week. So we're going to look at the second half today. And uh, as you're opening and turning there to Romans 1.18, I just want to uh, acknowledge that today is a special day on the calendar. It's called the Lord's Day. It is the day when Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week, moved the Sabbath day by the power of the resurrection from Saturday to Sunday, and calls us to gather, calls us to set it aside as a day of the Lord. So I appreciate you guys doing that. I have to admit to you, I'm a little tempted to be discouraged today with uh, low attendance. And um, at the same time, I also know that it's a big weekend for traveling, that uh, our, our members who are away, we trust that they are worshiping with other churches where they have traveled to and still, uh, still observing the Lord's day today, um, putting the honor of the Lord first and foremost. And, uh, and so we, uh, I'm just, I appreciate though, I don't want to be tempted into that discouragement and then let it flow out on you guys who've been faithful. <laughs> so I appreciate you. Uh, and, of course, it is also a day that's on the calendar, uh, in our national calendar, as a day to, uh, to remember what happened back in 1776 on this day and the, uh, the independence that our country has and just an appreciation for our country, and that is a good thing. It is a good thing to uh, acknowledge God's providence over what he has done in the United States of America. Uh, I am personally of the opinion that America is the best country in the world, And that is not something that we can thank man for. That is something that we can thank God for. Another way to put it is that America is the worst country in the world, except for all the other ones. All right? Um, But we have to acknowledge also, the United States is temporary. The kingdom of heaven is eternal. And God has called us on the Lord's Day to come together to honor God and God alone. And that's what we're hoping to do today. So we're going to do that. We're going to set our minds on God. And this is a statement about God that we have in Scripture. We want to look to God first and foremost. So let's read this together. In fact, I'm going to start back in verse 16, and then I'll read through 18, even as we're just looking at the last half of verse 18 together today. The Holy Spirit tells us through the pen of the Apostle Paul, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then here's today's verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. As we acknowledged and talked about last week, That verse, verse 18, is the introductory verse for a section that begins there and goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, that outlines the sinfulness of man and our sinful state, our need, our deep need for grace. The book of Romans is going to lay out so beautifully and clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he takes time, first of all, in explaining that gospel to say why we need the gospel. Why both religious and unreligious people need the gospel and must be born again and need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's where he gets into, starting in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
that wrath of God. When we say the wrath of God is revealed, we talked about it a little bit last week, but John Murray says, here's what wrath is. Here's what the wrath of God is. John Murray, the great 20th century theologian, he said, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. God is a holy God. If God were to accept ungodliness and overlook ungodliness, God would no longer be a godly God. He would be an ungodly God. He wouldn't be God. If God were to overlook and accept and do nothing about unrighteousness, he wouldn't be a righteous God. He would be an unrighteous God. He would no longer be God. If God were to simply say, unholiness doesn't matter. Come on into heaven, unholy people with your unholiness. He wouldn't be a holy God. And so what he has done is he has revealed his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now keep in mind that the Bible has told us up front before this that there is a way of salvation for ungodly, unrighteous people. And the way of salvation is that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The way that this comes about is that God gives to sinful human beings his righteousness. He counts us as righteous when we have faith in Jesus. It's called in Romans 5.17, the free gift of righteousness. So we need to know that up front because the Bible tells us up front right before this verse that ungodly, unrighteous people may receive the free gift of the righteousness of God, be forgiven because Jesus has had the wrath of God for sin poured out upon him on the cross. And we can receive it as a free gift. We can be counted, even as ungodly, unrighteous people, we can be counted in his sight as saints and righteous and clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith in Jesus. And yet, even knowing that, even as us who know that and love that truth, It's important for us to know, and it's here in the Bible for us to know, that our sin is still serious. And that there's a reason we needed this grace, and if you have not received that free gift of righteousness, there's a reason you must receive it. That it is your only hope in life and death. And that reason is that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let's think about what that is. The ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When he says men, he means mankind. He means everybody. He means you. He means me. He means the guy on the island who has never heard a word of the Bible before, as he's about to make clear in the verses that follow after this. He means everybody in the whole world. He, he is, God has his eye upon them. And he sees all things. And he knows all things. And he knows the ungodliness, he knows the unrighteousness, and God from heaven reveals his wrath against those things. What is it when we say the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men? Well, ungodliness and unrighteousness, in a way, are the sort of the same thing. But I think those two words are put there together on purpose here, to teach us something more than just Sin is really sinful. Now, sometimes the Bible uses uh, a, a sort of a multitude of words in that way. 
There are some places where if you see a, a listing of things, it's just for emphasis. And some people even take this verse that way. As though Paul is just saying, well, ungodliness and unrighteousness means a whole lot of sin. But I think in the verses that follow that we can see that he's saying something specific here too. It's not just that there's a whole lot of sin. He's pointing out two different categories of sin where one leads into and snowballs into the other one. That ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. I think that you can see this if you look down just a few verses in your Bible that I hope you have open because I asked you to open it earlier. Uh, if you look in that Bible, you can see where he says, what is known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. That's verse 19. He goes on and he says that there are invisible attributes of God, things about God that can be known just from being a human being that's in this world that God created and looking around and understanding something about who he is. But he says there that the natural result of that was not godliness. The natural result of that for natural human people uh, descended from Adam, inheriting the sin of Adam, the sin nature of Adam, is not to look at that and to then honor God, but to look at that and to go deep into ungodliness, deep into idolatry, deep into exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. That's ungodliness. And then he says, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up into the lusts of their hearts, to things like impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies. He says in verse 25 that it's because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, that then verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He goes on and he describes homosexuality. He goes on and he describes all kinds of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and all of these things. What is laid out for us here is a pattern that ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. Ungodliness. What are we talking about with ungodliness? We're talking about failure to honor God as God. We're talking about failure to be devoted to God. We sometimes hear about people who are supposedly devout. And it's interesting how, how that word is sometimes used of those who don't go to church even. How can you call someone devout if they don't even go to church? I'm not talking about people who are in nursing homes or something like that. I'm talking about, occasionally you hear this about politicians. Someone will say, well, he is a devout Christian. Sure, he hasn't been to church in six months, but he's been campaigning. But he's devout. Well, that's not what devout is. That's ungodliness. Ungodliness is not honoring God as God. It's not being devoted to God as God. It is not embracing the truth about God. When you hear the gospel and you don't accept it, that's called ungodliness here. That is failure to honor God as God. It's not worshiping God and not worshiping God alone as our only God. The way that Jesus put it is this. When he described godliness, he said, here's what it looks like. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. That's godliness. And then he goes on and he describes righteousness. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, Jesus, when he gave those two great commandments, those are, those are summary statements of the Ten Commandments. And so when we see this ungodliness, what we're talking about is 
failure to uphold, especially the first four commandments. Now, Dan read for us the Ten Commandments at the beginning of the worship service, and I just want to read them to you again. Because if we're going to talk about ungodliness and unrighteousness, then we need to know here is the moral standard that God has. You also need to know what's coming up later in Romans, especially in chapter 2, that this moral standard of the Ten Commandments is not something that is unknown to people who have never heard the Ten Commandments read aloud. This moral standard is something that is written on every human heart. It's called the conscience. Our conscience bears witness and accuses or even excuses us according to Romans 2. It's, it's evident from the early chapters of the Bible that even before God spoke the words of the Ten Commandments aloud to all of Israel, that every single one of them was already known and in place. Every bit of it. And yet so often it's ignored, and not just ignored, but the first four of them are just completely tossed out. People want to be righteous without being godly. But here's what godliness looks like. It says, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. You know what that means is that God is God, and he alone is God. The sun is not your God. The universe is not your God. Maybe it is your God, but ought not to be your God. Luck, that's not a very good God, is it? The gods of the horoscopes, the gods that you would pursue on your ghost hunts, the gods that you would pursue in making money the God of your life. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. The gods that we would set up in all kinds of ways, the gods of every other religion, even the gods of religion that take the same names as our gods, such as the supposed Jesus of the Mormons and of the, uh, who's those other people that knock on your door? The Jehovah's Witnesses. That's another Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. Guys, all of these other gods, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And when he says before me, he's not just talking about ranking. He's talking about that I can see. He's not talking about level up. He's talking about anywhere around. And where does God see? He sees everywhere. No other gods at all. We are to worship and to honor God alone as our God. And he drives it home and expands upon this in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's saying here it is very, very easy for human beings to invent their own methods of worship and for those methods of worship to be passed down from generation to generation and for the generations that come afterward to look at the generations that came before and say, surely if my lovely grandmother worshipped this way, then it must be the right way to worship, when in fact it has no basis whatsoever in what God has prescribed for his own worship. This happens within churches, and certainly it happens in the world apart from the revelation of God, as this is the basic pattern of mankind and the human heart. 
is to turn away from worshiping God and to worship what can be seen. Or even to claim to be worshiping what cannot be seen through the means of looking at something that can be seen. To set up these images of worship. To, to do all of these kinds of things that would, that would improve upon the worship of God as he has said to do it. Or even to go out into other forms of worship. That is ungodliness. Ungodliness. The third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know what? Every time I'm, every once in a while, you, if, you, if you use the internet, you've, you've seen these. These things that pop up about what New Jersey is like. Every once in a while you'll see one of these things. It's like a list of the top ten, ten things that only New Jerseyans really get. And I always, I always look at that and I, I really enjoy the list until I inevitably get to the parts that have curse words in them. Because that's supposedly part of what New Jersey is, is that we're great people and we love pork roll and we cuss. And guys, maybe that is what New Jersey is, but that's not what the kingdom of heaven is. We don't take the Lord's name in vain. We're not to bring reproach upon his name. This is not just a command against cussing. Guys, this is a command against singing the hymns that we just sang, but not singing them from the heart. This is a command against going out and claiming the Lord told me that this is the path I should take in my life when in fact the Lord has not spoken. This is a command against all kinds of ways that you could go about living your life supposedly in the name of the Lord and yet dishonoring the Lord. That's ungodliness. And then the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Many Christians think that this commandment is jettisoned and gone. And I just don't think that that's the case. You even have John. Let me, let me, I'm not going to go into a whole argument for it, but guys, the Apostle John could not go to church when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And yet, do you know what John says about what he was doing on the Lord's Day? He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Guys, the Apostle John, keeping the Sabbath even when he couldn't go to church, is the means by which God gave you the book of Revelation. And, and it is still something that God would have for us to look and to say, let's remember the Sabbath. How do we remember these special days that are on our calendar? Will we plan ahead for them? We say, well, there's a special day coming up. What are we going to do? How are we going to work ahead so that we're prepared for that special day? You do this when you go on vacation from your job. You, you, you do this when you're, you're planning to have company over. You say, this is a special day. I need to get ready. I need to prepare. And that's what the Lord calls us to do for literally the only Christian holiday that's in the Bible, which is the Lord's day. The Lord's day. He says, remember the Sabbath day. To do what? To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That, by the way, is part of the command too. Do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your livestock, your male servant, your female servant, or the stranger who is within your gates. Just as I had to tell a tile guy yesterday, no, please don't work on Sunday at this house. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
And we, say, we see that and we say, but, but it's so much more convenient for me if I don't do that. It's more convenient not to obey all the commandments. And yet God has given us that day as a gift. Jesus said that man was not made for the Sabbath. It's not a burden. But the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift to you to embrace and to remember and to keep holy. Now, why do I read all those? It's because I think that that is what Paul is bringing out when he says ungodliness and unrighteousness. That this is the starting point, is that we are called to know and to honor God. What's the tendency of mankind? It's coming up in verses 21 to 23. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him. That's part of godliness, giving thanks. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. I want to ask you this. What do you love? What are you devoted to? There, I hope that there's a lot of things that you love and are devoted to. I hope you love and are devoted to your family. I hope that you love and are devoted to your country. I, I hope that you love and are devoted to above all of those things, God. God. It's not bad to love and be devoted to other things, but it is bad to worship those things. It is bad to set them up as objects of honor alongside God or even ranked underneath God. God is not the one who is to be first among many gods. He is the only God. He alone is to be our God. He alone is to be worshipped, whether it's in outward worship, whether it's in the worship of our hearts, even as we love and reverence lots of things. God must be the first in our love. God must be the only in our worship. Some of those, well, let me put it this way. If, if there is anything that is an object of worship in your heart, in your life, even if it's not the top object of worship, needs to change. That is ungodliness. If you're not a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ today, that is ungodliness in itself. Jesus says that those who have not believed in him are condemned already. That is ungodliness. You need to turn to him in love and in faith. And in turning to him, you need to be godly, be devoted to God. Here's what Jesus says. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You hear that? We need to abide in Christ. He's the vine, we're the branches. When we think that we can do things apart from godliness, apart from abiding in Jesus, we're just mistaken. The only way that we can come to God, the only way we can be godly is to come to him who is the true vine. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You can't be godly without coming to know the Son, Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we come to him? How do ungodly people come to the holy, godly God? It's by the sacrifice of Jesus. It's because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, says 1 Peter 3.18. Any hope of righteousness that we would have, it has to start with godliness. When when we would be righteous, 
It needs to begin with faith in Jesus. It needs to begin with receiving the free gift of righteousness that comes by faith. So I want to know, is your faith in Jesus? And if it's not, turn and place your faith in Jesus. That's the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of godliness. And believer, you who already have your faith in Jesus, I want to know, do you pursue godliness? In 1 Timothy, it says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Yeah, it's way easier not to be self-disciplined. And yet, he says, here are means of grace that you have. Here is the self-discipline. Be in the word. Be in prayer. Be in church. Do these simple things and be disciplined in them, and God will grow you in godliness. And he says that this godlessness, this ungodliness, then leads to unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. I read you already how the Bible tells us in the verses that are coming right after that godlessness, ungodliness leads into unrighteousness. What is that unrighteousness that we're talking about? Well, I guess you could really say it's breaking all the Ten Commandments, but we already read the first four that are about godliness. So we'll think about the last six in particular. But what it is, is a failure to love God that flows out in a failure to love neighbor. It's a failure to honor God in our worship that leads to a dishonoring of God in our personal behavior and in our hearts and in our relationship with other human beings. Now, here's, here's something I know you've heard. I hope, I hope that this is not something that you say of yourself. People say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Right? I've heard that a lot. It's a way to dismiss the gospel. I don't really need that. I'm already spiritual, but I don't want religion. Or some people will put it like this. They'll say, I, I, you say I need a relationship with God. I do have a relationship with God, but I'm not a fan of organized religion. To which I always respond, do you prefer disorganized religion? I always say that with a smile, too. Just so that people don't think that I hate them or something. But, guys... God, what, what, what people are saying that in that, when, when, when you hear someone say that, I, I, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. They're saying, I can be righteous without godliness. I pursue a righteousness of my own invention while rejecting any form of devotion to the God of all righteousness. That's what's wrapped up in those statements. People want to do justice while dismissing the God of justice. You know, another word for righteous in the Bible is just. Another word for righteousness is justice. There's so much talk about injustice, and that's not new. I know that in various ways it's a hot topic, but that's not new. It's something that's been going on for a very long time, this this appeal to justice in ways that would go against godliness. Well... That's been the appeal of of what's called progressivism for 150 years or maybe more. It's that feeling of being righteous without the need to submit to God, the God of righteousness. That's even driven movements of religion that call themselves Christianity while they reject the central truths of Christianity. We call this Protestant liberalism. You had that in religious leaders like Friedrich Schleiermacher and Walter Rauschenbusch. You had that in American political figures like Woodrow Wilson and John Foster Dulles, 
And I won't name the more recent ones or you'll think that I'm just here to talk about politics, which I am not. But this has been a movement for a very long time. Let's pursue the idea of justice without pursuing godliness. Here's, here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this in 1956 from his pulpit in London. And I think will probably resonate a lot for us today here in 2021 in Matawan. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Men thought that you could still have Christian conduct and behavior without the vital experience. They said, it does not matter what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. Shed the virgin birth, shed the miracles, shed the substitutionary atonement, shed the resurrection. Ah, yes, but let us have the teaching of Jesus, the social gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. That is what they were saying 30, 40, and 50 years ago. Now, remember, he was saying this in 1956. They were turning away from godliness, but concentrating on righteousness the social application of the gospel. They said, this personal salvation of you evangelists, this personal confrontation with God, and this personal experience, in emphasizing this, you do not pay attention to ethics and to morality and to the social conditions. Now we, they say, we are concerned about society. We are going to bring in the social emphasis. But you see what this has led to. Having got social morality, there is not ethical living. The state of society is ungodly. It is unrighteous. It is broken down in morals. And why? Because you will never have morality except as the outcome of godliness. It cannot be done. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is the unrighteousness that the ungodliness flows into that we see overflowing in our society that you would think, you would think that Paul wrote Romans 1 in response to what's around us in America right now. And yet this has been the tendency of the human heart ever since human beings sinned in the Garden of Eden. He says later in Romans 1, well, what is it? It is things like sexual sin dishonorable passions. He goes on for several verses describing homosexuality, which is not new at all. He says in Romans 1.29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Here's some of it. Evil, covetousness, which is not considered a sin by most in the world. Malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You know what these are all sins against? The law of God. Laws like honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Guys, whenever I meet somebody who I share the gospel with them and then they tell me that they obey the Ten Commandments, which happens a really weirdly, surprisingly large amount of, of the time uh, is people saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm already righteous. I already obey the Ten Commandments. Well, they certainly, I mean, the first four commandments, those are just out. They are not at all talking about having only the Lord as their God. They are not at all talking about worshiping God according to his good design in the second commandment. They have nothing to do with not dishonoring the name of God. or they, Certainly, they don't care about the Sabbath. But then you get to the fifth commandment, which is the first one that's about our relationship with other people. We'll honor your father and mother. 
That's about submitting to authority. That's pretty rare to find among those who say that they don't need Jesus. I hate to say it, but it's pretty rare to find among those who say that they do need Jesus, too. Submitting to authority is what's built in there. Our father and our mother are the first authorities that God puts in our lives, and it expands throughout the scripture to show us that that's about all the authorities that God would put us under. Of course, not not following them into sin, but everything else. He says, you shall not murder. Which is, guys, you just got to know, murder is openly celebrated in our country and called justice when it's the murder of the unborn. It is, it is murder masquerading as justice. But we think, well, that's just about those people over there. Well, this is, Jesus says, also about the hatred of others in your heart. It gets at all of us. You shall not commit adultery. Well, yes, but Jesus says that this also has to do with the matters of the heart and where we point our eyes and the reasons we point our eyes there. You shall not steal. We say, well, yeah, I don't steal anything. I don't steal anything, but I'm not going to quite report that number on my tax sheet because government doesn't need that. There's all kinds of ways you could go on about that, and I have gone on about that. You shall not bear false witness about, against your neighbor. That's not just about not lying. It's about telling the truth in such a way as to love our neighbor. When you throw out something that is hateful and hurtful and say, well, it's true. You are, it might be true, but you are breaking the ninth commandment that has to do with your neighbor. The tenth, the, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Now, this is one that the world does not put in their mental lists of the Ten Commandments. The world thinks that covetousness is great. Let's pursue what we can. We deserve it. You deserve Covetousness is written, those of you who, who get uh, these, these little flyers in the mail for retirement places, they are filled with, with appeal to your covetousness. You worked and now you deserve it, Right? But it's not just that. It's looking around and saying, oh, that guy should not have as much of the pie as he has. That should go to these people. That should go to this. This should go to that. This should go to me. Oh, man, there's so much we could say. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. We could go on for a long time about this. And i got to say that, that I, I think that it was beneficial when we went through the Ten Commandments as we were going through Exodus. When we got to Exodus 20, those sermons are online. I'd encourage you to go back and look and re-listen to them. They were, it, from my perspective, they were beneficial enough to the church that my intention is to edit them into a form of a book that I can put in your hands, not a book that publishers will want because publishers don't want another book on the Ten Commandments from an unknown pastor of a small church. And yet, I want to get it into your hands because it's just so helpful for us to set our minds on the law of God so that we can follow after him in godliness and in righteousness and know the depth of the grace of Jesus to die for us for the breaking of these things. But when we see those things, we have ungodliness, we have unrighteousness, and it's in front of us. And I want to know, unbeliever, are you trying to establish a righteousness of your own? Well, the Bible tells us in Philippians 3 that that kind of thing that's to get thrown in the garbage 
needs to be counted as loss, needs to be tossed in the garbage bin, instead of establishing a righteousness of your own, to have that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. As that's the good news. Even as God has wrath against all these things, that God has poured out his wrath on the cross. When it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, it's very easy for us to think about how that must be for other people. And yet, you know what? It has to do with both before and after your conversion. Both before you came to Christ and now as you are living your Christian life. The Bible says about it before our conversion, Ephesians 2, uh, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we still need the wrath of God to be poured out on the cross for our sins, even the sins that we commit after we've come to faith in Jesus. It includes my sin, it includes your sin, when it says the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. When you have come to faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, but it doesn't make them less serious. We need the cross. We need the cross of Jesus. When you come to faith in Jesus, what that looks like is you turn your heart's affection to Jesus, to the Savior who died for our sins. And as part of that, and overflowing from that, and as a logical result of that, that happens immediately upon that faith, we also repent. That's, that's where our heart's affection has not only been turned to Jesus, but in that turning, our heart's affection has been turned away from the sin that killed this beautiful Savior. Guys, we need to pursue godliness and righteousness Because Jesus has died for our sin. Because Jesus has died for our sin. What does this lead to? Well, it says it leads to the suppression of the truth. He says, this wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The last phrase in the verse, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Guys, the truth is not conducive to godliness. Or excuse me, it's not conducive to ungodliness. The truth is not conducive to unrighteousness. When the sinful human heart comes up against the truth of God, there is a friction there. Because the truth of God says you should turn from your traditions and your beliefs and change your mind and embrace the truth of the gospel, and become godly. And the sinful human heart says, it's more comfortable to stay like this. And the truth of God comes and says, the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. And the sinful human heart says, it is more comfortable to gratify the desires of my flesh. It feels better. Guys, godliness, it requires... For the whole world, it requires abandoning pagan worship. This is part of why the truth is suppressed, is because throughout the world, there are systems of worship that have been established for thousands of years. And yet when the truth collides with those systems, it says to those systems, you must abandon this. 
You must abandon the false religion of your fathers and your father's fathers and your father's fathers because in all of that pagan worship, this wrath of God has been revealed from generation to generation to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, says the second commandment. The truth of God comes against unrighteousness and the human heart says, ugh, but I want to indulge my flesh. And so I will suppress this. So you know what the natural sinful human heart does? It suppresses the truth. And some of the ways that you see this happening are just with obvious truths. Not just with the suppression of the gospel, which is specially revealed, but even with the suppression of the truth that is revealed through nature itself. I think the most obvious one that we see every day put in our faces especially it was the month of June, which they're trying to change the name of the month of June to Pride. Not even Pride Month anymore, but Pride, kind of like you call December 25th Christmas. And you know what that's doing is they're saying, let's ignore what nature makes plain about male and female. Because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. It ought to be plain that a male weightlifter should not be competing against women at the Olympics. But the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. It ought to be plain that male high school students shouldn't be competing for women's track scholarships. It ought to be plain that we shouldn't send women into combat for our nation. Putting our wives and our daughters into harm's way and weakening, I mean literally weakening our ability to defeat our enemies, which is what the military is for, and doing all of this in the name of man's twisted sense of righteousness as they suppress the truth of what is obvious to anybody of the difference between men and women. But guys, it's not just in culture war issues like that that these things come up. It's not just in culture war issues. It's the default software that's built into every human heart from birth to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In every attempt to hide, which Jesus calls remaining in the darkness, every attempt to deflect, Every attempt to change the subject when the need to repent and to turn to Christ comes up. It is built into human hearts to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a vicious circle, and you see this vicious circle through the rest of Romans 1, where the nature of God is plain. The law of God is plain. The standards of godliness and righteousness are plain, but that truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. And then when the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness, it says God gave them up. He gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up to a debased mind, and they go deeper into unrighteousness. And deeper in unrighteousness, you suppress the truth more. And then God gives you up. Guys, this is a downward spiral to hell. And it is the natural state of mankind. What do we need? We need the truth. We need the truth of the gospel. Guys, we need something that is more than just what can be known through nature. We need the good news of Jesus Christ. That truth, that truth that we need is the gospel. It's not known by natural revelation, but it is suppressed by human hearts when it comes into contact with them unless God does a miracle. When the gospel, when the truth comes to a human heart, The Bible tells us plainly that it is a 
stumbling block to Jews and it is, uh, it, it is foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God to embrace the truth of Jesus. When we think about the truth, the truth being suppressed in unrighteousness, you need to hear what Jesus said about himself in John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So the big question for each one of you and each one of human beings in the world, but let's think about this personally, is how will you respond to Jesus, who is the true truth? Will you, unres- will you respond in unbelief? That's what Pilate did. Pilate had the Savior of the world in front of him. So he had the King of glory standing in front of him, saying this to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But do you know what Pilate said in his unbelief? He said, what is truth? Oh, what a clever question, isn't it? What a great question to deflect the truth of the gospel. What is truth? What a great way to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to write a philosophy book that says we can't really know the true truth. Do you know what all of those philosophy books are really about? They are about building a wall between the sinful human heart and the holy God and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and saying there is no need for me to come into the light and to repent. Whatever clever explanation we have about the truth or about philosophy or about whatever else, guys, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And he is plain and the gospel is offered plainly to you that God is holy. Man is sinful and that's you. But God has sent the solution, which is Jesus Christ, his son, to live for us, to die for us, to rise from the dead, to be our savior. And we can receive salvation and the free gift of righteousness by faith in Jesus. Embrace the truth of Jesus. Come to Jesus in faith. Will you do that? Will you do that? Or will you be unbelieving like Jesus? Here's what Jesus said in John 8. He said said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When Jesus says you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, he's not talking about all the inventions of mankind that where we could boast about our great learning. He says it is abiding in my word, being my disciples. You want to be free. You want to be free from that downward spiral of unrighteousness and suppressing the truth and being given up in ungodliness and being under the wrath of God. You need to come to the truth of Jesus and you need to abide in his word. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know what we should do is we should forsake our ungodliness and believe the gospel. We should worship God in the ways that he's commanded we should disciple, or excuse me, discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Forsake your ungodliness, come to Jesus, pursue godliness, and forsake your unrighteousness. Cast your soul on the mercy of God in Christ. Knowing your sin, cast your soul on Christ. Receive 
as you trust in him, the free gift of God's righteousness that comes only by faith in Jesus. And as a believer, pursue him. The wrath of God is against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Let's pursue godliness and righteousness by faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that Christ has come. I thank you that he has given himself as a propitiation for our sins, the just for the unjust, the just Jesus for the unjust pastor. God, I thank you that we stand as believers forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And I pray that that cleansing would continue, not just in the sense of how you already count us as clean by faith in Jesus, but also in the sense of how you were sanctifying us and rooting out sin. God, I pray that you would give us the grace to hate our sin and to love Christ. God, I pray that the gospel of Jesus would go forth. Even as we've addressed today some of the the main, most popular ways that the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness, God, I pray that you would tear down strongholds. I pray that you would shine the light of Christ on human hearts that have been hiding in the darkness. God, open their eyes to see and to love and to believe in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.